4: Good morning. It's Thursday, 22nd of September. On the Michael Reed Show this morning, a major cost of living protest is planned for the weekend in Dublin. Good news for those looking for a home as the government launches the ready-to-build scheme. We have the very latest. A new initiative is launched aimed at increasing the numbers of women in politics. The government launches its rural plan 2022-24. Fergus O'Dowd accuses the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, of being ageist over Delgan Nursing Home Review. These stories and more on The Michael Reed Show with Alan Cantwell until 11 o'clock this morning. And if you want to contact us, you can do so by text or WhatsApp on 086 1800 658. Members of the public are being urged to take part in a rally this weekend to demand the government do more to tackle the cost of living crisis which is crushing families and households. A demonstration organised by the Cost of Living Coalition will take place in Dublin on Saturday. The group, which is made up of 30 organisations, including trade unionists, students and pensioner bodies and opposition political parties, will urge the government to take radical action on the cost of living and housing crisis. Paul Murphy, People Before Profit TD for Dublin and South joins us this morning. Uh, Morning, Paul. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Can I put it to you that, you know, this isn't the first protest we've witnessed. The turnout has been... Respectable, but you would think that turnouts should be in the tens, if not hundreds of thousands, given the nature of the crisis that people are going to be faced, and it should be happening every other weekend. But what this tells most people is there seems to be a sense of maybe indifference on the part of people, or maybe they're happy to go along with the government in terms of what they are flagging. What do you see it as, and are you disappointed at the numbers that have been coming out?
0: Good morning, Alan. Um, I, I think we're going to see a lot of people uh, on the streets in Dublin in what is a national protest this Saturday have to at Parnell Square. Um, I mean, I, I'm out every day talking to people. Um, people are really, really feeling the pinch now and they're, you know, anticipating the coming of winter weather and literally hundreds of thousands of people face with the choice of heating or eating. I mean, we now have a situation where almost one in two families in the country are facing a situation of uh, energy poverty. We know people are facing bills potentially of 6,000 euros uh, in the course of the, the coming uh, winter, while the profits of the big energy companies absolutely soar. Um, so I, I think people have had enough um, and there's, uh, you know, was an important indication of that last Saturday, where there was a regional protest in Cork, where I think there was a protest a number of months ago. There was a thousand people at it.
4: Yeah, but but, but like just just going back to going Thursday. back to the point, Paul. You know, those numbers are pretty small in comparison to the likes of, and I know we, you're, you're comparing apples with oranges, but if you look at what happens in France when people protest, by God, they can do it. And look at our history in terms of the trade unions, what they were able to do back in the day during recessions, and what the likes of the IFA were able to do in terms of mobilising people. We just so don't seem to be able to do it.
0: Well, I, I think on Saturday we, we are going to begin to do it in a very substantial way. So the, the protest in Cork increased in size from a number of months ago, it was 1,000. Last Saturday, it was 5,000. So that increased fivefold. In Dublin, around the same time, we had a protest of three or 4,000. And again, if you increase that fivefold, you can see you're into then the, the tens of, of thousands or well over 10,000. And and I think that's that's what we need to do. I mean, this is the last Saturday before the budget. The budget will be announced next Tuesday. So we have to pile the pressure on the government to take action to protect people from this absolute crisis that is facing people in terms of rental costs, in terms of mortgages, in terms of food prices, in terms of electricity and gas uh, prices. And I I do really feel that in the last few weeks something has turned where I think, you know, it was hard for people until then. um, But, like, I think people felt, oh, maybe it'll go away. Maybe the inflation will kind of stop but actually things have gotten worse and worse. And I I definitely get the sense that we've reached a tipping point where – A lot of people are saying this is going to keep getting worse unless we do something about it, unless we force the government to take action to cap prices and so
4: on. Right, you you want the government to take action. They have not given us the definitive details of what they're proposing for obvious reasons in the budget. However, we do have a a pretty good indication of what's going to happen. And you must accept as well that the Minister for Finance has a certain amount of money available to him. The majority of the initiatives he wants to put in place are now put in place in stone. They'll be tinkering around the edges. So in reality, you are not going to get some blue sky vision at the last minute from the minister by virtue of the fact he's constrained financially for doing things that you want him to do.
0: Well, I think the more people that are on the streets on Saturday, the more pressure the government will be under to do more than what they're currently planning to do. I mean, I don't expect the government to do what is necessary. What is necessary, in my opinion, is to nationalise the energy sector, to say profiteering is at the root of this crisis. I don't expect this government to do that. Um, but they are under pressure to do things that they previously never wanted to do. I mean, things that we were raising months ago and are ridiculed about windfall taxes on these energy companies, um, about price controls and so on. They, they are under pressure on these sort of issues. So the more people that come out, the more pressure the government will be under to do more. Um, I mean, and I think fundamentally like I mean, the basic outline of what we know the government is planning to do is, you know, the centerpiece of this in terms of tackling the, the crisis is they're going to give people 600 euros energy credit like the 200 euros people got in the course of the last year. I mean, the, the problem with that, obviously, that's better than, than nothing. But if you don't have price caps, if there's absolutely nothing to stop the electricity company saying, okay, thanks very much. We'll, we'll take that and we'll increase our prices by 600 euros over the course of the year and just take that in extra profits on top of the record profits that are already being taken. So that's, that is the problem with the government's approach as, as currently exists. And that's. Precisely why we have to okay.
4: You know, the movement to them. Uh, uh, Paul, you were talking about you know the palpable sense of anger that you are getting from individuals to that you speak to on a, almost on yeah. a daily basis, and the, the difficulties they're going to face. That anger doesn't be seem to be channel channeling itself in in the right direction to make people sit up and listen and say well, we better do something here radical because if we don't, we're in trouble.
0: Well, that, that's precisely why we established the coalition is to try to do that. And I think people welcome the fact that, look, this is a broad coalition um, we, and we, in People for Profit, initiated it, but the IC2, so the entire Congress of Trade Unions, is part of it. Sinn Féin is part of it. Social Democrats are part of it. Senior Citizens Parliament are part of it. USI, the students are part of it. You know, it's a very broad array of people. For example, the NICA protesters from Donegal are coming down. Their issues are also related to the cost of living. So I, I think we're managing to mobilise you know, different sections of the population that are affected by the cost of living crisis in, in different ways to come together to maximise our, our voice. And, and that is something that I think is attractive to people. I mean, meetings have been happening across the country almost every night. I've been doing a public meeting somewhere, like during the water charges, and people are, people are turning up um, to listen to Why this is happening, listen to what the alternative is, and then to get organised, take leaflets, to give them out, to spread the word about the the protest.
4: Can I ask you just in a broader political sense, are we witnessing a shift that we haven't seen in quite some time in Irish politics, where perhaps the left is going to come centre stage, some might say they're, they're already centre stage, but in terms of seizing power that we might see a different political landscape in the next general election by virtue of what is happening now uh, to this country and in certain respects what's happening in Europe?
0: Yes, I mean I, I think there is every possibility that we can have a government after the next election which does not have Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael in it which would obviously be the the first time in the history of the state um, that we had such a a development. Um, What I I would say to people is that for some people, that prospect can mean that they're kind of like they're waiting for the election. You know, like I I was giving out leaflets for a protest, the last protest, and a woman said to me, oh, brilliant. I can't wait for the next election and to vote for you. And I had to say, we can't wait for the next election we do have to mobilise now the next election could be over two years away like the crisis the damage that will be done to people literally you know li- people will literally freeze to death as a consequence of the
4: inaction well, well h- hang on a second now Paul we don't know that we have to wait and see what the government number one are going to implement to ensure that doesn't happen and number two what measures long term measures that we could can put in place to make sure it doesn't happen now we've heard um, uh, um, Eamon Ryan speak about this only two days ago when he said under no circumstances would be people be in a situation where they won't be able to feed themselves or heat themselves
0: but but, but that is the current situation there are people right now plenty of people who aren't able to adequately feed and heat themselves and the winter hasn't even uh, hit yet so unfortunately that that is the situation but I'm saying that the more we mobilize now, the more pressure we put on the government. Um, but also, hopefully, we prepare the way for the kind of left government that we think we need to have, which is one which breaks with the logic of capitalism, breaks with the idea that we have to everything on the basis of profit and implement eco socialist policies. And we're certainly you know, appealing to all our other partners in the Co- Cost of Living Coalition to rule out any coalition with the fall or Fianna Gale in order to give people a real choice uh, at the next election.
4: And they say, be careful what you wish for, Paul, because most political parties that go into government find themselves in a situation where they can't do what they promise to do. And ultimately, all political careers end in failure.
0: Well, unfortunately, there is a history of people elected on a left basis in this country, the Labour Party, most obviously, but also in a slightly different way, the Green Party, going into power and then completely reneging on all the problems. They have
4: because paid. they're left with no choice because they're constrained by virtue of what the senior civil service tell them what they can and can't do because there's only a certain amount of money available for them.
0: Because two things, I think. One, they're in coalition with who represent the interests of big business, big corporate landlords in this country, and two, because they agree to operate with... But the which, which are
4: a necessary part system. of this economy in order to ensure that we have it you know, turning as, as best we can. Whether we like it or not, capitalism is an important part of this economy.
0: But that's what we, if we as left government, we're not going to accept that capitalism is an important
4: part of uh, the economy. Okay, well it has um, to be a part in some shape or form.
0: No, we, we think we need to completely reorganize our society. I mean, you, you look at the absolute disaster we're facing in terms of climate change, in terms of biodiversity loss, as a consequence of running everything for profit. It's the same thing that's driving the cost-of-living uh, crisis. So that that's you know, the policy that we think will have to be implemented is we need to nationalize the energy sector. I mean, we had a not-for-profit energy sector, state-owned, um, which delivered the second lowest electricity cost in Europe up until 2001, when then you had liberalisation, ESB was turned into operating on a for-profit basis, and the result is the disaster we have okay. now. So that's that's central. We have to nationalise the energy yeah. sector and run it democratically for right, right. this uh, is the,
4: This is a conversation for another day, Paul, but I just want to get back to the protest. What will be a measure of success for the coalition in terms of turnout?
0: I, th- I think we need to get more than 10,000 people on the streets. I think that will be important, and I think that will send a signal to other people that there is a fight on here, because this won't be the last protest, it won't be the act- last action of the cost of Living Coalition. And Unfortunately, I think the crisis is likely to continue. But I think that could be a turning point. I mean, the water charges, for example, it didn't emerge with a protest of 100,000 people. There were smaller protests before then, there were smaller protest- meetings before then that gave people confidence that, OK, there's a fight kind of worth getting involved in here and it- it's worth my time get involved and go to the protest. So I think if we had 10,000 people plus okay. on Saturday that would be important.
4: Just briefly Paul, I'm not getting into histrionics here but if we go back to the last um, economic downturn, that appalling situation that we all had to go through back in I suppose a bit really between 2008 and 2012 was the worst period in this country financially. Now we, we saw protests, we saw you know people camping outside the, the central bank and said they weren't going to move until something was done. Realistically not a whole lot happened as a result Result of the protests back then so it doesn't really instill confidence this time around does it?
0: Well I think the water charges is an important reference point for people but the, the political establishment was absolutely wedded to commodification of water water charges that was very clear and they were beaten they were beaten because we had a mass movement of protest, hundreds of thousands of people repeatedly out in the streets we had a mass movement of non payment 73% of people refusing to pay and mass organisation in communities to reject water meters etc. So, that proves they can be forced to do things that they don't want to do if they come under enough pressure, they can be defeated. And so, I think that is an important kind of recent reference point for people that shows it's worth getting involved, protests can make a difference and then people should come out on Saturday.
4: Very good. Paul Murphy, People Before Profit TD, thank you for joining us this morning.
3: Michael Michael Reid on
4: LMFM. Welcome back. Just want to get through one or two comments if we have the time in relation to the last piece we did. Morning, Alan. While the protest on Saturday is welcome, I believe it should be on a weekday. The Doyle does doesn't sit at the weekend. These protests need to happen during the week in order to bring Dublin to a standstill to make the government notice when the truckers tried it, the nation didn't back them. Maybe we should have. That's from uh, Cahill in Mornington. I <laughs> Today's UN Security Council meeting will be the most important since Ireland gained membership, according to Minister Simon Coveney. The Council's meeting following Russia's announcement of an escalation of the war in Ukraine. Later, Taoiseach Micheál Martin will address the UN, giving an outline of Ireland's response to the war and food shortages in Africa. Now, the meeting comes as there's been fresh calls for the Russian ambassador to Ireland to be booted out and for Ukrainian refugees to be housed in the embassy. The call comes from Neil Richmond, for the O T D for Dublin Rathdown, a party spokesperson on European affairs who joins us this morning. Deputy, thank you for joining us this morning. I'll come to that in a moment. I just want to ask you uh, for your own reaction in relation to what the Russian President Vladimir Putin had to say in the past 24 hours. Are they words of a desperate man or should we be sitting up and listening to what he has to say with a sense of trepidation and fear?
5: I think, Alan, they are very much words of a desperate man but an extremely dangerous man and these comments are a significant escalation and uh, Russia's approach to this war and they're being followed by actions. We're going to see um, conscripts drafted into the Russian army from across Russia. Russian men aged between 18 and 65 are now banned from the country. We're going to see them run proxy referendums once again in occupied territories, absolute sham referenda. And of course, they have continu- continue to waive the very worrying nuclear threat while saying all manner of false and incendiary things about the global West.
4: Now, from a European perspective, we have to keep our nerve here because presumably he's trying to squeeze us when it comes to power. He wants to keep that button switched off for as long as possible and perhaps force us into a position where we're going to have to capitulate in some shape or form. Are we holding our nerve, though, do you think, or will we be able to do it long term?
5: No, I think we are holding our nerve, and I think the EU will be able to do it long term. It's actually going to get it easier in the long term because what we're seeing is a dramatic realignment of European energy um, reliance on, on Russia, we're seeing greater move towards gas from places like Norway and northern Africa, and indeed other countries are able to take liquefied gas in from North America. We're also seeing a greater focus at a European level on working with energy companies, but also developing more renewable um, resources. But I think we, we have to think back Alan, to a couple of months ago when the war was in a very different place, when Russia had made. Big advances where people were saying that Kiev was going to fall in a fortnight, and then the Russian forces were taking parts of the Crimea and the horrendous uh, siege of Mariupol we're now in a situation where the Ukrainian army have pushed a lot of Russian forces back to the Russian border. They They made it. They started a very major assault last week and the Russians are starting to lose huge numbers of troops and of tanks and, and the Western support, financial and military that has been given to Ukraine is starting to make a difference. The sanctions, which are only about um, six months old, are really starting to bite, not just on the Russian um, government and Putin but also that coterie of oligarchs, of vicious oligarchs that surround this dictator. So, of course, the global West has to keep their nerve. And calls from certain people, I would call them Russian appeasers, on the very margin, saying that well, now's the time to bring Russia back. It's called absolutely not. This is a dangerous Russian regime, and we have to continue to give the support to the Ukraine.
4: Now, is it too early to say that we're perhaps witnessing the beginning of a popular uprising in Russia when you consider the number of people who took to the streets uh, since Vladimir Putin's address on, on national television, Now, albeit those protesters are being round up and they're being thrown in into prisons or put on a plane to go out to the front to fight the war in Ukraine? Are we seeing a shift, though, in opinion in, in, amongst the Russian people?
5: I think it is a bit too early, Alan. We have to remember that Russia is obviously an extremely regressive regime where it's not a democratic regime. There isn't um, freedom of the press or anything like that. So I'm not too sure. I did see a far more experienced Russia commentator on network news last night saying it's 50-50 whether or not Putin will be there by Christmas. And I think that's the space we're in um, but we have to be very worried that a very desperate man can do very desperate things and that's why we need to see the continuing western if not global solidarity and i fundamentally believe that we in ireland with our European partners can and should be doing more and now is the time to do it.
4: Now there's very little defence to be put up in order to allow or to continue allow the Russian ambassador to stay in Ireland by virtue of what has happened in the past 24 hours. It's not the first time you've called for him to be booted out but you haven't really made a whole lot of progress so you get the sense that there may be a groundswell of support that we should be getting rid of him now.
5: I understand the reasons why the Minister and the Department of Foreign Affairs give, why they're not comfortable expelling the ambassador or you know, turning um, the embassy over to the state. They have concerns about the 5,000 Irish people remaining in Russia. They have concerns about the two Irish diplomats in our embassy in Moscow. But I think we have to be honest that this Russian ambassador, every day longer he stays here, is causing damage. He is spreading misinformation. He's spreading disinformation, not just about this war, but about about wider uh, socio-economic and political things throughout our society, his regime in Moscow is absolutely barbaric. He's not just defending that regime, but he's promoting it. And the fact is there's an extremely large diplomatic presence here. We've only expelled four of the diplomats so far in this round due to concerns of espionage following previous explosions after the murders in Salisbury. Absolutely, now is the time, and I'm happy to work with any other TD or senator from all parties and none, to continue the press not only for the expulsion of the ambassador, but for shutting the entire Russian diplomatic mission to
4: Ireland. Now, in the past you have lobbied to get rid of him. Will you intensify your lobbying? I know you said you're going to be talking to whomever will be able to bring some sort of focus on this politically. But do you get the sense that you're fighting an uphill battle?
5: Of course, and, and I understand why, but that won't stop myself and colleagues within my own party and others continuing to press that. I will have this. Um, I will try and raise this in the hall today. If not, I will raise it continuously next week and every annual to push it. And I look at the example, Alan. This this is, this wouldn't be a rogue move. We've already seen in Lithuania, in Bulgaria, they've expelled the entire Russian diplomatic missions. Other EU countries have expelled far more. Just yesterday, we had the the Ambassador of North Macedonian Committee. They've expelled 11 Russian diplomats based on a much smaller diplomatic mission in Skopje. We absolutely need to be stepping up this because every di- Russian diplomat here is genuinely a threat to our national security.
4: Deputy, I can't let you go without commenting uh, briefly on the events which happened in Cherry Orchard a number of nights ago. I know you tweeted on this. Um, we, I mean, we're at the thin end of the wedge here what is it is it a breakdown of society is it a lack of respect people don't care is it a lack of resources or or how do we deal with this or how do we refocus the minds of local communities
5: yeah there's no silver bullet i think First thing to say is that Cherry Orchard is a really lovely part of Dublin filled with lovely, lovely people. However, there are a small number, a handful of absolute thugs that are causing misery to all those people living there. There's a few things that has already been started by Helen McEntee that I think next week in the budget we will see the finance to increase. That's in terms of increased um, police presence, increased youth diversion programme. But also we need to see that these people who ran that car, or car are caught are sentenced to a very long time in jail as well.
4: We leave it there. Deputy Neil Richmond, thank you for joining us this morning. Now before we go to a break just a couple of things that I want to update you on we covered them, well we have been covering one of the issues for quite some time since I uh, jumped into the hot seat here over the last two weeks and that is in relation to the emergency department at Navin Hospital. Yesterday the Minister for Finance appeared on another radio station, he appeared in fact on the Pat Kenny show on News Talk, and um, they were talking about the hospital and I said well maybe this is the, maybe this is the golden opportunity that we'll get the information that we've been looking for and have invited the Minister into this studio to give us. But no, there is nothing new, nothing fresh. The best we got out of the Minister in relation to Navin was, well, we have to have a global view in terms of what's in the best interest for the region when it comes to health care. And the review is continuing. That review that he said would only continue for a couple of weeks is still ongoing. So that is the definitive position, as we know it, from the Department of Health around Health Navan Hospital. One other thing, um, the Minister for Education, and this is in the context of the many calls that we have had and the questions being raised about school transportation and the lack of availability of seats for children who heretofore qualified to be able to get Um, uh, transportation to schools and Omar Foley Minister for Education was in front of a joint the Roxas Committee yesterday now if anything positive was to come out of it it was that she more or less said that they would look at budget 2023 that's the budget forthcoming next week that they may be able to get funding from that in order to sort the situation out but what she did say was that the cohort that there's a question mark over at the moment they will do everything within their power to try and sort that out. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
6: 86 1800
4: 658 That's the number if you want to get in contact us by WhatsApp or text this morning to comment on any of the items we're covering here. A seminar aimed at increasing the diversity of women in local government will be hosted by Louth County Council in association with See Her Elected at the Crown Plaza Hotel Dundalk next Tuesday. Increasing the diversity of women in local government will include panel discussions with local and national politicians as well Speakers from diverse groups. Chief Executive of Louth County Council, John Martin, welcoming the seminar, said it was an important step in increasing diversity in local government. Joining us this morning is Dr. Michelle Marr, Program Manager with See Her Elected. Uh, Dr. Good morning, thank you for joining us. Um, can I put it here? I suppose this is a, an issue we'll have to fight on two fronts. One, encourage women to get into politics, two, ensure that the diversity is there once we get women in.
7: Yeah good morning Alan and that's exactly why uh, this seminar is happening and you know I want to start I suppose by congratulating Louth County Council and especially Anna Ryan of Louth Public Participation Network because they're leading out on this despite being one of the better councils when you measure that in terms of gender equality you know as as you and your listeners probably know there's 29 county councillors in Louth 12 of them currently are women which, you know, makes you one, one of the better um, councils at um, in, in terms of gender equality. And, I mean, you only have to look to your neighbours there beside you in Monaghan, where there's 18 county councillors. and only two women there. So I think Loud County Council and Anna Ryan um, of the, the PPN have to be congratulated in, you know, they're not resting on their laurels in, in Loud. They, they want to increase the diversity of people who would consider politics, local politics mm. in the
2: county.
4: Leaving aside the barriers that exist for women to get into politics, because mm-hmm. that's, I suppose, an argument for another day, looking at the diversity which we need in local government when you consider the diverse nature of communities in Ireland today and how they have been bolstered and added to by people from different different uh, countries, and particularly mm-hmm. uh, we, what we've seen happening in the Ukraine. Are there major barriers, or is there a lack of willingness on the part of individuals to go into local government to, to give representation to their communities?
7: Yeah. Well, what we found in See Her Elected, and it was the reason the programme was set up, Alan, was um, that a lot of the time women don't know where to start. Um you know, they, if you're not from a political family or, you know, if you're not a member of a political party, you know, one of the big barriers is actually how do you start or where do you start? So what this seminar with that we're uh, in collaboration with Louth County Council is doing is trying to demystify politics for, for all women and, and so that they start to learn how they can get involved so that we start to see women from different backgrounds different ages and so on, that they might might start to see a way of getting into politics opening up for a hit for them. And as you said there, you know, our, our communities are becoming increasingly diverse, uh, but we're not seeing that largely reflected in the makeup of most, most county councils. And I mean, one of the panels that we have speaking at our, our seminar, which is next Tuesday, the 27th of September at the Crown Plaza in Dundalk, Uh, is is actually bringing those women who are working in communities, because if you're looking for women in politics, you don't always find them in the more formal political institutions but where you will find them is flat out working in their communities and they're Mm. often the backbone of where they live. And they're often the
4: vanguard of major issues which are impacting local communities and they get very little kudos for it but one thing that they they will find when they get in in, into politics or dip their toe in the water it's not for the faint-hearted it's a slog (laughs) an absolute slog and at the end of it could be utter disappointment. Particularly yeah. in local politics, when you don't get elected,
7: yeah, it it, it can be, and often the, the the I suppose those who who have a I suppose a, a particularly rough um, campaign, it's often because they don't have a lot of the preparation work done. And again, if we look at the, all the different pieces of research that are out there, you know, about why there isn't more women in politics and why there isn't a diversity of women in politics. It's that women will tend to wait to be asked uh, to run. And when that ask comes from the political parties, it can often come quite late in the day. And I'm not suggesting that this happens in loud, but perhaps when some political parties might look at their tickets, they might think actually, we need, to, we need to have a woman on here. Yeah. So you, you can find women being asked to run quite late in the day. Michelle,
4: so weird. Yeah. Yeah, sorry for cutting across but we're running out of time. But I want to make this point to you and, and I yeah. just want to get your reaction to it. Um, what is actually crucial in terms of anybody getting into politics is support. That is crucial and expertise. Does this programme... You know, dip into that, and does it show a pathway where people can get that support and expertise?
7: Yeah. Uh, on the day, you'll hear from women who've gone into politics and their experience, and learning from them. And Louth County Council are offering anybody that's there at the seminar a pathway out of the conference and into politics with the See Her Elected program. We have a guidebook that's free to download from our website in English and Polish, which is just SeeHerElected.ie, which is actually every single nut and bolt you need to run for election and starting in October we actually have free workshops an hour a month that take people from the beginning right the way through to the elections in 2024.
4: Very good, we leave it there. Dr Michelle Moore, Programme Manager with See Her Elected joining us this morning.
3: Michael,
6: Michael Reed, Reed
4: on, on LMFM. The Minister of State and the Department of Justice, James Brown, launched the Rural Safety Plan 22-24 to at the Ploughing Championships in Leech. The plan brings together and strengthens all of the various strands of work being carried out in relation to rural safety and demonstrating and highlighting the collaborative efforts made by Angarda Siakana, other state bodies, Rural Farm Safety Forum, community groups and supported by the government. The plan seeks to enhance security in our local rural areas in enforces the importance that it's rightfully placed on the welfare of rural Irish communities. Seamus Boland is CEO with Irish Rural Link and joins us this morning discuss, to discuss this plan. Uh, Seamus, good morning. One thing strikes me here. It's, it's, it's all about boots on the ground. We need more Gardaí to ensure that this plan is implemented to its fullest.
8: Yes, of course it is. And first of all, let me say that Irish Rural Link would have been calling for this coordination of, of activities in, in rural areas because they have been vulnerable and they have been subjected to some terrible situations of crime where people have been hurting and some places have, have, been, have lost their lives. So, first of all, let's welcome the initiative. The boots on the ground, you're absolutely right. Of course, we need uh, more guardians, but we also need more um, people in Neighbourhood Watch and other uh, sponsored schemes out there as well because the strength of, of all of this uh, plan that we would have been calling for for a long time is that it mobilises um, properly trained uh, volunteers linked to the guardie, because that's the most important thing. These, these neighbourhood schemes are linked what the Guardie do uh, and the messaging systems. All of these are important. So the boots on the ground are, of course, more Gardaí because we need more community Gardaí to man these, to organise these, to give support to the to volunteers. And we need more volunteers who are properly trained in the area uh, uh, so that we can ensure communities are seen as no-go areas for crime or criminals.
4: Now, we also need some form of network that informational communication can flow and that things are acted upon. It's all very well having community organisations, but if they raise issues that aren't acted on, what's the point?
8: Yeah, and I I think that, like in our organisation, and I know other rural organisations like Middle Spear and others, have been consistently... Uh, putting forward uh, proposals and ideas in terms of uh, protecting our rural communities. Um, Yes, we would always be a little bit um, critical, that often our recommendations either are not acted on quickly or it takes a long, long time. And even this programme yeah, I think we would have first proposed this about five years ago. Uh, so at least uh, it's been done. But I think what I keep saying to government in this area is that you, you need to listen to the needs of local areas. Some areas, have, the, the problem with the neighbourhood watch schemes and other schemes like it is, not every area has them. And I think it, we would ask that the government, through their offices and the Guardian, it, it, make sure that there is one properly resourced and established in every single community in Ireland and and sadly uh, Alan what happens is these criminals are sophisticated and they learn the areas that they're not there and they target those so I think it's not enough to expect the communities to try and set them up I think the Guardian must be active in this area and indeed um, people in, from the Department of Justice must be also active in promoting
4: them. And it has to be said that these criminals I mean if you look at the history of crime in rural areas, particularly I'm talking about home invasions, I'm talking about serious assaults, they are far more vicious these days, the criminals, and it goes back to the one thing, and that is people need to feel safe in their home. If they don't feel safe going to bed at night and locking their doors, we really have a problem.
8: We, We do, and look, not to be worrying people too much, it hasn't proved a great deal, but let's be clear also. ArterLink would keep saying to people, look, if you're leaving your house for a while, don't advertise it. If you're going on holiday, if you're going to a, a wedding or going to a funeral that could go on, as you know, in rural areas, funerals may last a day. Don't, first of all, use Facebook. hazard. These criminals use Facebook very effectively to know where people are and to know where people are not. Be really careful. Always make sure that. There is always somebody looking in on your house or your barnyard or your rural uh, dwelling if you are not going to be there. And in other words, like let's not let's make it really difficult, and that's why uh, a proper guardy, uh establishment, along with trained community people, are so essential to make sure that an area is seen as an absolute local area.
4: Okay, let's change our focus a little bit in terms of the priorities being identified in this particular plan. I want to talk to talk about one particular issue which seems to be on the increase that is affecting farmers directly, and that is animal crime, cattle rustling, etc. It is a problem.
8: It's never gone away, to quote a phrase, uh, and sadly um, it's not as bad as it used to be uh, because the, the, the tagging system hasn't improved. But again, uh, again, farmers have to take precautions, sadly, very strong precautions. Uh, unfortunately, where people have land away from their dwelling or away from their house uh, and there's access in there by the roads, etc., uh, farmers just can't uh, stand by and do nothing. They have to make sure that gates are locked and, and that, if possible, security systems, cameras, etc., are placed. Um, but, yeah, that is a real problem, and, again... We are talking about surveillance in terms of the community and in terms of the Gardaí. And we're talking about greater information campaigns, which remind farmers that, you know, this this, this is a problem. It hasn't gone away and you need to be careful. But again, as I said earlier, Alan, uh, if an area has a proper, uh, I call it neighborhood water surveillance system in place, and the signs are up everywhere that this is active, this is real that these problems reduce and that's what I mean, no go areas for crime
4: Okay, well well, let me ask you then of what you are hearing in rural communities is the review that it's you know, pitifully inadequate in terms of resources uh, on the ground to deal with this and much of the time it's left up to the individual to secure their own premises whether it be with CCTV, alarms etc and that comes at a cost as well
8: yeah, I think that's uh, Alan. You're putting your finger on it. That's exactly the situation. You know, at the end of the day, um, you, here's the idea: you have uh, hundreds of guardy in, in any particular area, visiting farms, visiting areas on a uh, literally a daily basis, reminding people, having a presence. Now, you and I know uh, probably will never be funded, but that would be the idea. But if we're not going to get the idea, what we do need. Is uh, first of all a lot more community guardy in each area. We need a lot more boots, as you said on the ground. Linked to that, then we need the active promotion of neighbourhood watch schemes. Some areas, of course, where community um, activity is very strong are very good and they do a really good job. But there are many areas unfortunately, especially isolated areas, where the community is a bit more fractured and you can't get that kind of local involvement at the way, at the level you need for this kind of program. And I would be saying to the Department of Justice and Gary, you really need to concentrate and find an alternative solution and work. Through the various organisations to try and achieve that solution. Otherwise, these are the areas that are vulnerable. And sadly, Alan, you know, these are the areas where people do feel very nervous uh, at night time.
4: Very good. We must leave it there, Seamus Boland, CEO of Irish Rural Link. Thank you for joining us. Now, I just want to get through uh, a couple of comments before we move on. Cost of living. Yeah, this is Paula from Drada. Alan, what planet are you on? Listening to your interview with Paul Murphy, my blood is boiling. If something is not done, of course people will die from the cold this winter because they won't have the money to heat their homes. Have you not been listening to people? People are already struggling to make ends meet. Old people afraid to turn on the lights. You heard it on your own programme. Also on the cost of living, Jim from Trim, I think Fianna and Fianna days are numbered if they don't get a grip on what is happening because of the energy crisis. People need to see real supports in this budget that will help them to pay for their bills and it needs to be right across the board, not just to help those who are dependent on the welfare system. I would have voted Fianna Fáil in the past, but I'm very worried for the future and want to see some concrete measures that will take the pressures off people. Some of your comments, if you want to text us 0861800658. Michael, Michael Reed on
2: LMFM.
4: Fnagual Ltd, Fergus O'Dowd says he wants an inquiry into 22 deaths at the Delgan House Nursing Home in Dundalk. He told the Doyle, if it were children who had died, there would already be an investigation. Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly said he was working to get answers for the families and joining us this morning is Fine Deputy Fergus O'Dowd. Deputy, thanks for joining us this morning. Um, Just before we put this story into a little bit of context for our listeners, I want to just read for the benefit of our listeners what the Minister had to say around this. I know you're privy to this information, but I will. It's only one short paragraph. And he says, I met the families myself and there has been extensive engagement and extensive work done. The issue we have in Ireland, the deputy will be very aware of, is in any review that seeks to make findings against people, it becomes very legalistic very quickly and ultimately doesn't give the families the answers they want. That's a fair point he's making, is it not, uh, deputy? Good morning.
9: I don't don't agree, Alan, at all. I think, first of all, and thank you for facing this this issue, the families are looking for... uh, an inquiry into why, into who, what, where, the why, is to find out, first of all, to get the truth of what happened, because we don't know the full truth. And many thousands of people sadly died in Ireland because of COVID. And in the first four months of COVID in Ireland, 1,500 people passed away, and 63% of them died in nursing homes. Uh, compare that to, say, England. For the same period, the number of people that died in nursing homes from COVID was 43% of the total number who died. In places like Sweden, it was 47%. So Ireland's deaths are higher, and they're higher in nursing homes. So that's the broad issue.
4: Okay, I just want to be... Sorry for cutting across your deputy, but but I just want to make this point at at the outset. We're not necessarily making assumptions here about the nursing not homes. Not. The inquiry you want carried out is in relation yep. to what the, the Department Facts. of Health were engaging no. in or what they were providing in terms of support during this. Am I correct?
9: Uh, no, no that's, no, that's not the case. No, it's, it's not the case, Alan. And I appreciate you wouldn't be familiar with the whole issue. It's basically, of all the homes where people died, Dalgan is the only one in the whole country, the only one where the HSE went in and took over the running of the nursing home. So there were separate and special issues, obviously, pertaining to that home that made the HSE go in and take it over. So what the families are trying to find out is, you know, why did that happen, how it happened, and also to have an inquiry into the care of the people in there And why, you know, all the detail of of the tragedy that unfolded in Dalgan House. So Dalgan House is different, Alan, uh, because the state effectively took it over and therefore it has a greater responsibility to account for itself so hence uh, the uh,
4: reluctance you believe in the part of the minister to press ahead well, I think with what you ageism. want
9: it, it's ageism ageism is basically it could be uh, it could be uh, you know a bias against young people it can be ageist or older people but uh, to say to say that he met them. Now, when he did meet them, it's nearly two years since he met them. And he repeats the same statement that you read out there time and time again to me in PQ Answers since then. So nothing has happened. He hasn't communicated with the family, he hasn't met them. Now, I would welcome a communication with the family uh, from him. I would welcome a meeting of him with them to find a way forward, to find the truth. So of the families to get closure now his talk about uh, all that stuff about legal inquiries or legal challenges and all of that i mean it doesn't have to be a legal inquiry it could be done by uh, it could be done by the ombudsman it could be done by a specialist in human rights it could be done you know it, it doesn't have to be a legal inquiry but it has to be it has to get at the truth and clearly medical people should be on that and also, I would have thought somebody who has knowledge and experience in, in, in vindicating people's okay. human rights, because the rights of those people were not vindicated.
4: You spoke to some of the families, again, I'm not going to get into or ask you to I'm get into the right details, that, but yeah. did they raise concerns about what was going on?
9: Of course they did, Alan, and they raised them uh, during that time. They didn't just raise them with me. They raised them with Marie McGuinness, They raised them with the Minister for Health, who was Simon Harris at the time. They were raised personally, and directly with the, with the head of the HSE. Everybody knew there was something happening there.
4: Were they serious concerns in your mind?
9: Oh, they, oh, oh There were very serious concerns. Of course, there were, and that's and that's why the families are anxious to get at the truth and to get closure. So the minister it 's not about the law it 's about the facts and it 's about also vindicating the rights of older people and ensuring you know that the rights will be protected into the future and what lessons could be gained from such an inquiry could and should, I would say, and would imply if it's carried out, uh, to the care of older people generally right across the country, and to find out why is Ireland different, why, why did more people die in nursing homes in Ireland proportionately than they did in, 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 in there were five countries studied, and Ireland was the second highest debt, um, the other country I think was about 1 or 2% higher, so there are serious issues. And they warrant an inquiry. And what I say, Alan, if these were children, if these were babies, uh, rather than people in their 70s, 80s and 90s, do you think we would have had an inquiry by now?
4: Well, what I I want to try and ascertain, given the the fact that 22 people died here, and given the seriousness of the situation, why it is not being uh, expedited... Exactly. by the Minister, yeah. by anybody else. So where, where's the roadblock as you see it,
3: Deputy? Well,
9: as I see it, you see, I've raised this with the Taoiseach in January of this year. I've raised it with the Minister in July. And 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 the minister in his reply acknowledged to me that that I was campaigning on this issue, but he never mentioned the name. of the, I asked, "Would he carry out directly?" I asked him a question: "Will you carry out an inquiry into this named nursing home and the, the number of people who passed away there?" He ignored. He ignored my question. He didn't. He didn't answer it. Okay. So I think there's an arrogance there as well, which is not acceptable. And I mean you know i i 'm not i 'm not personalizing it he 's not giving me the answers, so obviously i 'll have to go elsewhere to get them uh, and i I think it 's a matter it, it 's a matter of of what our country is like and if you look at the World Health Organization. Um, you know, like they say, ageism is very prevalent in society and I believe the Minister has clearly an ageist uh, approach to this okay.
4: issue. Deputy, I want to ask you before we just wrap this up, your own okay. views on the Minister's position around Navin Hospital and his inability to give us certainty around the future of the emergency department and when we're going to get answers around when the particular review is going to be published. Can you shed any light on any of this? Well,
9: I I can shed a light on on, on my own personal view on it. I believe people should be treated in in the nearest place to where they live with the most appropriate care. And as I understand it, uh, the vast majority of patients who are presently attending Navan hospital will continue to present and be treated there. Mm-hmm. And it, it is only people who have an exceptional need for special care that isn't available in that particular hospital um, would be moved to, to a hospital that will have uh, and the appropriate staffing levels to deal with that special care. And the hospital that's been mentioned, even though it's not in the hospital group that Navin is in, is Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda. And on that point, um, in 2015, there were 357 beds in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital. Today, there's 478. 70 million euros has been spent in the Lourdes Hospital, improving the facilities. Now, if new patients come in from Navan uh, on medical advice, the hospital needs to have the skills to treat with that it needs to have the professional nurses doctors, specialists there and i think that the minister is right in saying that all of those if that is going to happen then there has to be the there has to be if the service must be available there i can't make it worse for anybody but the ultimate point is you know if i am sick and if i'm an ambulance i want to go to the place i'm going to be get a special treatment um, and obviously Navin is that place for the vast majority of patients but for some, and we'll know from their view, the review, the expectation of the numbers may be elsewhere okay. if it is elsewhere well, then I, I would want to go there personally, I would want to go where it would be best
4: n- n- Nobody wants to give up the fight or nobody wants to admit that maybe the fight will be lost but there seems to be a growing view amongst individuals who are at the centre of this campaign that maybe the fight is lost. Do you share that view?
9: Um, I, I, I don't because I think that um, I think that the vast majority, as I understand it, the vast majority of patients presently being treated in NABIN will continue to be treated there. Uh, and if you need specialist care, and if you, even if you're in Drogheda and you need specialist care that isn't available in Drogheda, well, I, I would want to go to Beaumont. You know, you, you need to go to the place which will meet your care needs where they are highest. And that's why you have specialised centres regionally and nationally and Loud in Drogheda, that is where the specialist care is available. But if you need an even higher level, then you'll be going to Dublin. Uh, but the other point is that if you've been taken from one town to a different town, the ambulance that you travel in, the expertise that's available in that ambulance, the training of the staff, the communication—if it's specialist urgent care, you know what communication systems are needed. You know, can you have a hands-on uh, removal of patient aid to hospital B? You know, what do, we, do you need? Specially skilled nurses or doctors or staff on that ambulance to do that? And they are all the questions that have to okay. be answered. Anyway.
4: Very good. We must leave it there for the Gael TD. Uh, Fergus Odad, thank you for joining us. Now, just before we get to a break and move on, there's a couple of things I want to get through. First of all, a comment. Navin listener, text in to say, Would the Garda Commissioner not be better off supplying more squad cars to Gardaí to help stamp out thuggery and anti-social behaviour like we saw in Dublin? Instead of cars, and Garda drivers for politicians? He's done a good job so far, but I think this move is not one of his better ones. Well, that was a political decision, and I think it was implemented some time ago, but it's only come to the now, where the the ministers are getting back their guard, the uh, their guard the drivers. But it's an interesting, nonetheless, point to make. Just to remind you that um, tomorrow on the programme, it's my final day here, and what we want to do is to ask you how you are coping, how are you're surviving in this cost of living crisis we want to hear the real stories from people from families, from the elderly from the young and from those who are in employment and unemployment. We want you to text us, we want you to mail us it's michael at lmfm.ie we will bring you on the air if you so wish in order to, to tell your story. We will be uh, joined in studio by politicians who will endeavour to give you the answers, give you the certainty and give you a degree of confidence as we head into the very cold and difficult winter months and the uncertainty that surrounds what is going to happen to us. That is all happening on the programme over the course of the two hours of the programme tomorrow, so please do get in touch with us. Michael Reid
1: on, on LMFM
4: FM. Now, welcome back to the programme. The Minister for Housing and the Minister for State with responsibility for local government and planning, Peter Burke, have announced the Ready to Build Scheme. The scheme, which will be funded under the three Towns Fund, will see Louth County Council make available Available service sites in towns and villages at discounted rates for individual purchasers who wish to build their own home. Well joining us this morning to discuss this in detail is it Minister Peter Burke. Minister thank you for joining us this morning. First of all I mean most people will say this is a laudable initiative but how far will it go to trying to ameliorate the crisis that we're facing in the housing system?
1: Good morning Alan and to your listeners. I think this will be a very strong scheme in assisting people particularly in rural Ireland, around towns and villages right across the country, to get the chance of building their first home. Because we all know in terms of there are circumstances where someone, for instance, may not get planning permission to build uh, in their own area. Well, now they will have an alternative that if there's a site in close proximity to the town or village, that they'll have the option at a reduced price to access a site there from the council. So in other words, the council will service the site and therefore offered up to uh, the public. So we're aiming to hit about 2,000 homes by 2025. So I think, in other words, in the first instance, we're supporting rural Ireland with this initiative. You know, when you look at trying to keep the shop open, keep Dexter Teacher in the school, keep the GA Club healthy. This is a good initiative for rural Ireland.
4: Okay, Minister, well, let's just talk a little bit about the actual sites. Are we talking about greenfield sites? Are we talking about service sites that will be identified and then uh, be brought into the scheme?
1: Right. In the first instance, any land owned by the local authority which is serviced or is serviceable in the periphery of towns and villages can qualify. Also, we're given the option for local authorities right around the country that they can purchase land and then draw down this scheme and offer it to the public. So essentially, the conditions attached to it, then uh, a person has to apply for planning permission before ownership of the site will be transferred. And secondly, they must commence building on after 12 months or within 12 months on receipt of that planning permission or there will be a clawback of the right down
4: Now, obviously, they will have to be sold at a competitive rate in order to allow individuals who are challenged financially to be able to afford them. So what specifically in terms of financial aid is being given to individuals in terms of grants?
1: So the reduction is the cost of services site. So, for example, if you have a, a site in Mead uh, with a market value that's serviced of around uh, 60000 Roughly around, it could take 30,000 to service that site for water, wastewater, utilities. So essentially, you could get a write-down of 30,000 there to purchase that site and have the added benefit that you're on the periphery of your town and village and have good access to it. And that obviously provides a more sustainable form of living. I know in uh, Mead, many people were really calling for this. I know Minister English did a lot of work. As well as Joe Fox, the local councillor there, who was pushing so hard for it, so it is a very good initiative, and the demand is out there because, as you mentioned earlier, there about uh, derelict and vacant properties. We've Creek Corrigan now up and running, open for applications, which has given thirty thousand for vacant homes and up to fifty thousand for derelict ones.
4: Okay, so it's not a flat grant, as it were; it's a percentage of what the services of the, or it's the cost of, of servicing a specific site. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely. So the local authority will give a write-down from the market value what they assess or deem to be the cost of servicing the site and putting the utilities into the site, and then offer that to the public.
4: Well, let me ask you then, if an individual is successful in identifying and securing this particular site, will they be eligible, for example, for the vacant property refurbishment grant?
1: No, because it wouldn't be a vacant property. So essentially this is a greenfield site that we're referring to. In terms of vacant property or dereliction. That's on the, the Creek Cornhead Towns and Village scheme, which is a different scheme.
4: Okay. Um so how does it work then in terms of identifying the sites number one and allowing the public then to view those sites which are available? How are you then how do you then qualify for them if you tick all the boxes in terms of eligibility? Who decides ultimately whether you get that site or not?
1: So what we've done is uh, we've put a call out and spoken with the local authority network right through 31 local authorities. We have asked them or requested them to look at all the land in their ownership and offer up land under this scheme in the first instance that is service. But also, as I said, in the case where local authority may have a shortage of service land or may have towns and villages within their functional area that are crying out for housing. But because of particular geographical issues within their locations can't uh, increase their rural housing through one-off planning permissions, but they will have the option also to purchase land and avail of this scheme through central government. So there's two options there uh, which are very clear, and also in terms of people or citizens who are looking to access this scheme, uh, you will obviously have a position for first-time buyers within towns and villages, also a fresh start, so those uh, who have had marriage breakdown will also be eligible for this scheme, and also second-hand buyers, so someone is Downsizing or moving out of your home in the countryside, they must move into a town or village that will also be available under the scheme. So it's a kind of a tiered approach, trying to really, uh, you know, respond to the acute need of the housing crisis, but okay. also, as I said, which is very important, breeding life into rural Ireland to allow it fulfil its potential.
4: Okay, there's a couple of things that. Um, uh need to be addressed here. Number one, some sites are going to be better than other sites and will have a greater, I suppose, uh, attractiveness towards them from individuals. So how does that work? If two people are eligible uh, and tick the boxes in terms of the criteria for the site, what is it? First come, first serve?
1: Yeah, so the local authority will put out a competitive call and they will have to assess the application themselves. They will draw up the criteria how to assess the application in each area based on the demand that comes in. and look, We have said that uh, we have a significant budget. We have actually half a billion uh, for Creek, corner nationally, for all the funds in terms of our towns and villages and the dereliction and vacancies. And We started off in terms of this with a 50 million pot just for this year. So the funding is behind it. The local authority will have to assess uh, the applicants as they come in.
4: OK, now... Again, there will be individuals who will see this perhaps as an investment opportunity. It's not for investors. However, there will be people who are eligible for it going into it thinking that "Mm, perhaps I could make some money out of this and move on. That's a realistic proposition. How do you prevent people from doing that?
1: Just for absolute clarity, this must be and remain to be your principal private residence. If you don't, or you cease ownership of it, or sell it at a point in time in the future, there will be a clawback for the write-down that the council gave for the services that they put on the site.
4: And do you anticipate that there will be considerable interest in this? But when they look at the fine print, maybe it's not something that is is, is workable. What sort of research and are, are you getting back on it, Minister?
9: We have
1: sustained interest in this, and so much so in the last general election in 2020, Fianna had this as a key tenant. Of their housing manifesto because as we know and you probably hear on your show on lmfm where you know there are frustrations we've around 85 uh, percent of all one-off rural planning permissions been approved in this country but notwithstanding that rather 15% of people, for whatever reasons in terms of site suitability, be it in terms of getting adequate sight lines or percolation or entering onto a major archery or roadway, that they can't get planning permission, well, this is a viable alternative to citizens that fall into that category. So the demand I'm finding is exceptionally strong We will make it as easy as possible for people to access it because that's what we're trying to do under these various mechanisms. And we're really working with the local authority now with a full-time vacant homes officer in our local authority network that they're driving these schemes and trying to increase the interest.
4: And when do you anticipate it will be rolled out and ready for take-up?
1: It's rolled out and ready for take-up. So local authorities will be working on this right now.
4: Okay, very good. We must leave it there. Uh, Minister, thank you for joining us. That's Minister Peter Burke joining us this morning.
3: Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM.
4: Welcome back to the programme. With one person estimated to be dying of hunger every four seconds, Irish humanitarian organisations are among 238 local and international non-governmental organisations calling on leaders gathering at the 77th UN General Assembly to take decisive action to end the spiralling global hunger crisis. Organisations from 75 countries have signed an open letter expressing outrage at skyrocketing hunger levels and recommendations for anger for action, I beg your pardon. Joining us this morning is Rachel Nye-Kelakar, is the Head of International Advocacy with Concern Worldwide. Uh, Rachel, good morning. Thank you for joining us. No doubt you will welcome the fact that um, our Taoiseach Mihol Martin, when he uh, addresses the UN, that he will be talking about food shortages in Africa. What do you hope he's going to say?
6: Good morning, Alan. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Uh, well, I think what the Taoiseach will say today will pick up on what Minister Coveney highlighted yesterday. We're obviously following the um the General Assembly at the UN very closely because it's such a critical time. So yesterday Minister Coveney highlighted the, the the scale of global hunger, the impact of climate change, but also the impact of conflict across the world. And we would see we would hope that um the Taoiseach will echo that today, uh, calling for greater political will Ireland has really stepped up on um, making very strong financial contributions to the treatment of global malnutrition, which we would really welcome. And I think, uh, you know, the, um, what the government has been doing, they really have been shown leadership at a global level, because we're also impacted by the the impact of the, the conflict in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll be watching very closely the, when the this afternoon.
4: Now, you talked about our, our past record, and it's a good record when it comes to, you know, giving aid, whether it be financial or otherwise. But the reality is we're a small player in a very big game here. And unless the likes of the big powers really put their weight behind this problem, we're on a hiding somewhat to nothing. And when you factor in what's happening in the other side of the world in Ukraine, that seems to be what's dominating the narrative now rather than hunger.
6: It, it is... To an extent, I think the the only upside of the conflict in Ukraine is that it has shocked uh, global action. It really has has reinforced the connect how connected we all are. Uh, last year in November, there was a global food system summit, and NGOs like ourselves were really pushing hard on that connectedness. Um, that what happens in one country has a massive effect on another country, and now we're seeing it. We're, we're seeing it with Ukraine. We're seeing how um, the, the the spike in the cost of basic items is having a direct impact on whether a family can eat in in so many parts of the world. And I know we're very, you know, we are affected by it in Ireland as well, and and we wouldn't ignore that in any way. But it is having such a severe impact in places like Somalia and Ethiopia. And I think we would see that the crisis now is probably worse than it's ever been mm. because, as you said, the, the distraction that Ukraine is causing. So there isn't the political attention and there isn't the humanitarian response that so we would have seen it all the time.
4: It, it, it strikes me that, you know, you talk about it's it's as bad as we've ever seen it, but certainly, and I don't know if you remember this, you're probably not of my generation, where back in the 80s, Michael Burke from the BBC did those harrowing, harrowing reports, which subsequently... Um, put the whole spotlight on hunger and global starvation and we had Live Aid and what that a- a- achieved was quite phenomenal. But one gets the sense we're, we're a little bit desensitised in relation to this issue, or is that mean being just a little bit trite about the whole thing?
6: No, I think that point is valid. I mean, I do remember um, uh, Band-Aid, Live Aid and so on, and the the images that came from Sudan and Ethiopia and I know that people feel we've given money before. We've had this conversation before. What we, um, we are now seeing that if you overlay climate change on a lot of these problems, it, it really is catastrophic. And, for, and I think it's important that there was massive progress made on rolling back the numbers of people that were being affected by hunger. Pre-COVID-19, we were seeing the numbers dropping um significantly and covid again it reinforced that for many people who live just on the poverty line any big shock means that they're they're really you know thrown into chaos and it it is so tragic so i think we have to keep those pieces in perspective that the climate crisis and covid-19 has has shaken and, and undermined a lot of progress that has been that has been made um the 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 scale of conflict, the type of conflict, and like I think you're right that there is a level of desensitization, not from the public by any means, but politically, there's, uh, um, you know, a a lot of the, the geopolitical stuff is played out in countries... Um, where uh, conflict is ongoing. And that's very, very hard to deal with.
4: Yeah, and you come to this problem at, at an extremely difficult time because you fight this on two fronts. Number one, you need money in order to try and ameliorate the suffering and the starvation in these countries. And number two, you need to heighten awareness. So when it comes to the money aspect, you're challenged because we're all facing into a very uncertain future. So Absolutely. funds on a personal level will probably dry up a little bit, but on a, an economic level, from a government perspective, they may not. So that, in its sense, will also feed into the problem, won't it? It, it
6: will. And and we're, we're already seeing seeing that but then if you look at it from the other side on where governments do put money up you know we're seeing the amount of money that is being put forward by the European Union for example in response to the the conflict in Ukraine and you know correctly so but there are political choices around where um where governments do put their money I think one thing that that's uh Important to flag yesterday, there was a real good news story came from the General Assembly. So under Samantha Power, who's the the USAID, the the US government representative, she has been lobbying governments across the globe to put money on the table to address uh, malnutrition. So children under five who are at high risk of dying, there's 45 million children who would survive with adequate access to very simple products. Uh, We use... um, a product called Plumpy Nut, which is a peanut paste. It's a very simple product, and it saves lives. So yesterday, she, um, and obviously a lot of work behind the scenes, but brought governments like Canada, Denmark, um, the UAE, Ireland also, brought governments together to put money on the table, and over 500 million has now been secured to really um, ramp up programming to ensure that mm-hmm. all of these children who are who who could otherwise die very soon will get the assistance that they need. So okay.
4: A, can yeah. I just ask you, Rachel? And um, it, it's something that has uh, taxed the minds of people for a long time, and that is the financial oversight when it comes to money. Going to organizations or good causes, how much actually gets there. And I, I, I say that when you think of what happened in Somalia with Muhammad Farah Idid, where the resources went in to try and ease the plight and pain and suffering of the people, but he took it all in order to finance his war and defeat his troops. There is presumably much greater transparency now, is there not? Uh,
6: you, this is from, from 1992, yes. yes I mean, yeah. the- the there is huge uh transparency and for us you know it's it's an um a priority for us we have teams in every country that their job is is monitoring all the time our our uh reporting you know we we often complain to our donors that the the reporting requirements are very they are very heavy um we work very closely with Irish aid who come and monitor we just had minister brophy uh, doing a visit himself to the Horn of Africa with the team from Irish Aid. Uh, I think across the system, the particularly uh, in the last maybe in the last 15 years, the standards of humanitarian assistance has has really risen, and there is a, a huge amount of investment in it. But also, you know, we're duty bound to the Irish public. We're also duty bound to the people that we work with to make sure that every penny gets to where it's needed. And that that is, um, that's an essential part of our work. And we, we have to work very closely with our with our donors and ensure 100% transparency.
4: Okay, Rachel, just before I let you go, I want to just perhaps, if you could tell us, you know, from your own experience, I'm sitting here in a studio uh, in India on the outskirts of Drahada and I want to give, say 10 euro to a good cause. It's very difficult to me to comprehend how that 10 euro will make any sort of difference. But even the smallest amount, it does make a difference, does it?
6: Absolutely. And I can tell you, I mean, from my own experience, I was in Somalia in 1998 when we were facing a similar situation uh, again in 2011 and speaking to my colleagues every day now in Somalia. what we are... The flexibility that we have from the generosity of people who donate to Concern is that we can provide, uh, um, you know, we can see where there's a need, whether it's water trucking, for example, because it hasn't rained for nearly 30 months now in parts of Somalia. We, we, you know, provide the trucks, we deliver the water, it fills the jerry can, it supports the family, it's that direct. Um, and that's what we... Obviously, we get money from, you know, from governments also, but the the donations that we get from the public is that flexibility okay. that we can mobilise very quickly once that money is, is released from, uh, um, you know, from from our CEO here.
4: OK, very good. We must uh, must leave it there. Rachel Neale-Khalakar, thank you for joining us. Head of International Advocacy with Concern Worldwide. We're coming towards the end, but before I do, I want to get through as many comments as I can. Um, relation to crime and cost of living let's start with crime Thomas from Drada, it's not just in rural areas that people are nervous the Garthi need to up their presence in the towns also the visibility of the Garthi, I believe offers reassurance to citizens but also acts as a deterrent to criminals I had to walk across Drada after dark one night last week and I was quite nervous because there were a few unsavoury characters hanging around I would love to see Garthi on the beat again crime and Garda numbers. Tommy doesn't think that extra Garda will make any impact on these gangs of young people terrorising local neighbourhoods. They have no regard nor respect for the Gardhi, so it doesn't matter if they're facing down 10 or 20 Garda. They still continue with their disgusting behaviour. Tommy thinks that arming Garda is the only way forward. And this might make some youngsters think twice before doing anything to provoke members of the force. And cost of living, Sarah doesn't believe that the government has any idea of how worried people are about what's coming down the road as winter approaches. It's not just one sector of society who will be affected. It's every sector in society who feel the pinch this time round. They're just some of your comments in relation to the items which we raised on the programme this morning. We're back, same time tomorrow, with a difference. Cost of living with a difference. We want to hear your stories. We will be getting on air 9.15 till 11.
3: Until then, from me, Alan Cantwell, good morning the michael reid show podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on lmfm to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie lmfm podcasts with cnc carpets we bring the showroom to you or book a new showroom appointment on 087-660-4237